Support for the show comes from Kohler. Smart lights, smart refrigerators, smart locks. The list of smart gadgets meant to make life more convenient grows longer and longer every day. But what about smart things that are also beautiful things? Luxurious, even. Meet the Numi 2.0, Kohler's smartest toilet yet. The Numi 2.0 is a fully connected oasis of clean and comfort with unmatched sculptural design. More than a toilet, it's a work of art. Make your bathroom the smartest, cleanest, and most comfortable room in your home with Kohler. Learn more at Kohler.com. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Hey, everybody. It's Tina from The Vergecast. On this week's interview episode, we have Paul Ford. If you are an active Twitter user, somebody who reads a lot about tech, reads a lot of tech writing, you probably know Paul's name. He wrote an entire issue of Bloomberg Business Week called What is Code a few years ago. He's been writing about it ever since. He runs a product studio called Postlight here in New York City. And he recently wrote this piece I really like about how we should still be hopeful and excited about tech and what it can do for us in Wired. So I had Paul come in. We talked about that piece. We talked about sort of the state of building stuff for the web, the state of how people think about tech, what they're using, why they're using it. We just got into it. I've had so many conversations lately that are kind of inherently negative about tech. We constantly talk about regulating this industry or what Facebook is doing wrong. It was great to get that other perspective of someone who's still building stuff in charge of building things for a lot of different people and companies and is still hopeful about technology. So check it out. It's Paul Ford on The Vergecast. Paul Ford, you're in the studio with me. Hello. It's lovely here. Thank you. It is. The studio is too nice for our show. That's what I've always believed. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Nice acoustic deadening yeah. has happened here. I've got a lovely view. Yeah. Paul, 2015, you were already on the scene, but I would say you burst into the collective consciousness of the world because Business Week let you write an entire issue of their magazine. Let's be clear. Not going to be a lot of those in my life. It was just like a weird pop culture moment. Yeah. When people wanted to know what programming was all about. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a, a, a nerdy writer who's been around for a while. And yeah. the people at Business Week went, yeah, write, write something. And then they kept going, let's keep writing, keep going, keep going. They gave me the whole issue. Yeah. And it just became a thing for a minute. Like, I've never been in the middle of a thing. <laughs> right? I'm a, I'm a, a now gray, chubby you know, started out as a Perl programmer. So things weren't supposed to happen to me. Mm-hmm. But I did have my, that was my one thing. I got to go on Charlie Rose, which is a little less exciting <laughs> than it used to be. It, but no one expected a hit, right? They just expected like, oh, quirky business week. And then just millions of people were like, finally, someone explained what this thing is. So the issue of business week was called What is Code? What is Code? It was literally the entire print issue of business week. Mm-hmm. It was a moment, a great online presentation. Unlike print, you can, if you're listening to this, you can just go look at that right now. That's right. You just wrote another piece for Wired. It is not, they did not give you the entire issue of Wired. Which no. I know they're my competitors, so take it for a wheel. A mistake to not give you the entire no, issue. I'm really glad not to have the whole issue. That's, it's awful to have the whole issue. What's the piece in Wired called? Why I still, in parentheses, love tech in defense of a difficult industry. So 
you and I have been in the same circles. We've never actually sat down and had a conversation like this. But it's we've weird, been, yeah. We've been around each other. But I'm for glad a long we time. have uh, media to intermediate between us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Let's let's make a document. So why I still love tech in defense of a difficult industry. I have been talking to a lot of folks in the show mm-hmm. for weeks and months. There's a lot of criticism of the tech industry. Uh, we had Shoshana Zuboff on the show. She wrote a book called sure. uh, Surveillance Capitalism. It's sure. about the business model of tech companies is bad. We talked to academics, politicians. They tell us it's time to regulate the tech industry. They've, they've gone too far. They have too much power. We should break them up. The whole thing. You're saying, I still love this thing. It's yeah. hard, but I love it. Why do you love it? Because you can make the little robot dance on the screen. I mean, it's really that simple. It's First of all, all those people who are criticizing, tech can handle it. It's trillions of dollars now. Come on. It's mm-hmm. okay. It's okay that somebody doesn't love your thing and say that you're the best thing that ever happened. Like yeah. that, we got to get over that part of it. The part that I still love, that's still real, is making the thing go, right? And so I got into this because I never thought anyone ever would let me write or do anything. And so you could go make a web page and you could put your stuff up into the world and people would read it and connect to it. And it was like 25 people. And that just was wonderful. That was fantastic. That impact, that small amount of impact could be sort of had by anybody who had access to a computer, which again, not everybody has access to a computer, but still the baseline has come down and you can really do things unlike television, unlike newspapers, unlike just about everything that came before, the whole thing could be manipulated. And what you do with that from that point on, that's when the ethics start to really creep in. It gets tricky. Like, am I going to spy on people with that or am I going to make funny jokes? Mm -hmm. You know, in the case of Twitter, you can do both. And it's just (laughs) like, it's that. And then there's a whole culture there. There's a culture of people who make things. What is the right way to arrange human beings and turn them into good contributors to a culture of shipping and making software? And there are a million arguments and discussions about the right way to do that. Literally, many of them originate in this building from the core team, right? I mean, it's like there's a culture and um, the same is true of design and the same is true of of product management. And so I still think that that culture is really interesting and has an unbelievable unbelievable amount to contribute. And I don't think people, even the critics would disagree with that, right? Like I think there's just lots to do. What do you think is the the sort of biggest disconnect between the critics and I I am one and and the people who are building the stuff? Oh boy, I... (laughs) Well, this is this is fundamental, right? There's no, it's not a culture of introspection. So, if you grew up in a good liberal arts tradition, I did, and like you are used to interrogating the the hell out of everything, and it's sort of like, is this good or bad? It doesn't matter. It's a book, it's a bug, it's a it's a glass of water. Like everything carries a huge amount of significance, and and there are. Uh, and, and it lives in an ecosystem of everything else. And that's, you know, your undergraduate semiotics class and, and all languages uh, and sort of intertwined. And so you get into that. You really started like see the world as this big connected thing with, you know, colonialism and, and, and sort of all sorts of economic shenanigans at the base. I don't get the sense when I talk to like a young startup person that that's how they see their stuff. They go on hacker news and they read about startups and they see people who are making enormous amounts of money and having an enormous amount of impact and they go, I want that. And I I think what's unusual is because those two spaces are smashed into each other. You know, I don't think that like you, you participate in technology culture. We're down by Wall Street right now talking like there wasn't 
as much participation in the banking industry in the 80s and, and early 90s when it was just going wild everywhere, right? Um, you couldn't get close to it because it was so opaque and it was jargon-driven and so on. And I feel that, like, with tech, you've got these worlds where everybody's colliding, like, you know, people putting up their web pages and starting their zines. And over on the other side, you have, you know, relatively young people who are like, nah, man, I just want to get my startup and get paid. And, and it just, everybody's in the room together and they start fighting. This is what I really, I tricked you. This is what I really want to talk about, which mm -hmm. is the web. Mm -hmm. So the, the actual democratizing force in tech, when we talk about tech broadly, was the web. It God, was yeah, it's so good. It was the thing. Like the web browser shipped. Actually, this is Mark Andreessen's line. The guy who created Netflix was "Software's eating the world." Right. We're going to interconnect all these businesses. Their businesses will become software businesses. The software will be where the money is. But it was it was the web. I always first. feel that he sort of stops early in the digestive process. Like then it's like software then is going to sort of poop out the rest <laughs> yeah. of the world, and then like and here we are. What are we going to do then? Right, <laughs> it's like twenty nineteen. Eating and is not the end game, right? <laughs> like that's a system, right? So at a certain level, yeah. are you going to vomit the world back out or <laughs> yeah. poop the world back out? The world will then fertilize new worlds to come. That's what I love about that. Though is like it's the tech industry going like the most important thing is that fork gets in my mouth, right? <laughs> After that, it's your problem. Problem. <laughs> but it was the web. Yeah. I just want to, that was the thing. And now, obviously, there are many other layers by which you can access a consumer. But the first thing that allowed a kid to start a zine and reach everybody was the web. Tim Berners Lee in his book about the web. So, Tim Berners Lee is the really the progenitor and inventor of the web. He created the with a few other people, but it was, it was his baby. And in his book, he actually describes Mark Andreessen of that quote, um, really actively trying to commercialize and lock down access, right? Mm -hmm. And so what you had with Berners-Lee and with the early concept was we need to create a tool that will take all the data that's scattered everywhere around the internet, which at this point could fit on your Apple Watch, but like at that point felt like a lot of data, and we need to make it easier to access. Rolodexes and, you know, and, and sort of information about people here at the high energy physics lab that I work at and so on. And also pages of content, especially physics papers. And we'll link them together. And it was that simple. And then because of the network effects and because people had Unix servers floating around, suddenly you had this thing out in the world. Real software people didn't take it seriously. They're like, oh, my God, what is this? It's yeah. nonsense. Everybody, I remember in the 90s, like everybody was just like, no, they're, they're, there's much better <laughs> ways to do this. Trust yeah. me. The hypertext people thought it was silly. And the, the internet people were like, nah, Gopher is better. And just all these ridiculous things that now are kind of footnotes. Yeah. And My co-host, Dieter, uh, is from Minnesota, so I often give him shit that Gopher, Gopher which was a yeah. University of Minnesota protocol, was like patent encumbered, so it lost. That was it. That was it. Openness is very, very powerful. And yeah. it's not the ultimate tool for everything you might ever do, but it's very, very powerful if it hits at the right moment. And so what you had was this publishing platform that was so easy. And that's the part that I really, that's changed, is it used to be so easy to put something online. Now, it was harder than going to Medium and typing things in the box. It's harder than publishing with a CMS, but it was like being a participant in that world on a kind of equal playing field. There was like a, a short period where everybody got to play yeah. and kind of was at the same level. Okay, so that was then, and mm -hmm. the web built these businesses. It enabled it enabled our business. Absolutely. You now run a development studio called Postlight and That's enabled right. your business. What, what does Postlight do exactly? We are um, we're a product studio, meaning product management, design, engineering. You come to us sometimes places much like this one come to us and say, build our big CMS platform. Mm -hmm. um, 
we work for. And, and you we, run screaming. You're like, no. No, we come on in. <laughs> come on in. And then they're like, what about WordPress? And we're like, okay. Um, we've got uh, a lot of content management, a lot of um, NGOs, and then because we're in New York City, a lot of institutional banking and insurance clients. Yeah. So just exactly what you'd expect. So you're building web stuff for people. Um, yes, except you don't say web stuff anymore because that doesn't sound like you know yeah, fancy. Yeah. Your product studio. Product studio. <laughs> That's good. Oh, and what you're really delivering, this is what's tricky. You're not making web pages that much anymore. You're building like the API underneath or yeah. you're, you're combining three or four APIs and, and so you're speaking data. And then, you know, you're, you're setting that up on, on a cloud service provider and then you're building a web app that talks to that as well as maybe mobile web apps or mobile apps, right? So these are like, we're in this world where it's everything is APIs talking to platforms instead of pages being loaded in browsers. That's the, where the language has gone. Yeah. Is the web doomed? This is when I said I, I brought you in to trick you. Yeah, it's this okay. is the trick. I'm, I'm no, I mean, the, literally the every morning I bolt upright <laughs> shrieking. Well, I mean, look, if you just look at it, you have mobile apps, right? Apple seems very intent on moving mm-hmm. consumers into its app ecosystem for a variety of reasons, good and bad. Google feels less so, but a lot of that going on over there on the Android side as well. You have Facebooks of the world, which are sort of pulling people into an ecosystem that is web accessible, but, or I would say web adjacent mm-hmm. in many ways. And you have other platforms, Twitter, Tumblr, YouTube. These are, we're going to suck you into platform world and you're going to live by the rules of the platform. And that the web is just the place where you go to the platforms as opposed to the place where you go to the people. I mean, that's – and Microsoft was going to do that before too. Like every, it, people keep trying. My co-founder is, is way more of a hard-nosed business person than I am, mm-hmm. although I've, I've become more hard-nosed since we started the company. But still, like he's, he's tougher and he's just like, oh, no, man, I would never bet against it. It is – there's something about an open platform that shows up and can do just about enough yeah. that works everywhere and that ends up working – like. You know, I got a, a nice Pixel phone now. I, I moved over from iOS, and the mobile web browser on that is just fine for just about everything I do. And I forget that there are apps half the time. And Google's yeah. got like, oh, no, this is like an app, but it's also a web. And I'm just like, I don't care, man. Just, just <laughs> give me that app. Like, it still works. And the other thing, too, you load up that first web page. Mm, it's looking good. It's still going fine. You know, you're 25 years in now or, or thereabouts. And all the old stuff still works pretty good. Mobile sort of threw everybody a curveball, but we figured that out too. So I still, look, it's so big now. This is the other thing too. Like you had a tech industry back in the day that it wasn't, you know, Wall Street was much bigger. Now you have this thing, this entity that is almost like a, a substrate of all culture, just like banking is and finance, or just like the concept of money, like money and tech are two separate concepts, right? So you can't say that, I don't think you can really go like, there is one technology, there is one web, or there is one anything anymore. I mean, it used to be that you, web standards as created by the World Wide Web Consortium defined what the web really is. I don't think that that's, now it's more complicated and sort of like the browsers get to say it, except that Firefox has sort of, you know, reemerged as a pretty fast, pretty good browser. I just switched over to it again and like, I know. Everyone lives on this roller coaster. I know. No, this exactly. Is the, this is your Firefox season. This is my season of Firefox. <laughs> that is right. You know, but no, I don't. 
look, it would be really convenient for everyone if they controlled the means of all communication. You yeah. know, I mean, Facebook and, and Apple, and they're like, look, man, we, we just really want to help our consumers. And I think they believe it, but it just, this, this messy, sloppy pile of standards and technologies just keeps asserting itself. So when you are out and you're building for your big clients and they're like, we need AMP. Oh yeah, are you like AMP is taking it's it's taking over. It's mm-hmm. right. I mean, like that is the conversation we've had. The head of AMP on the show, yeah, right. And Malte was like, "We're just trying to make it faster. We're not trying to colonize the web." Okay, here's where it and gets- the, the pushback is: every little thing kills the web. Yeah, right. uh, look, okay. So I used to be a magazine editor. There was another editor there, and I remember one day I was at Harper's Magazine, which is a very progressive magazine and and very. Um, Oh, what's a good way to describe it? Just people there were very smart and assured of their intelligence. And I don't remember why, but I was outraged about the New York Times that day. Like just, just, you know, you have a day. It's the, it's the hometown yeah. paper and they piss you off. Mm-hmm. So I went into the senior editor's uh, office and I was like, uh, and I won't, I won't sell him out because he's now at the New York Times. But I was, <laughs> but I was like, oh, the, the way Times, of all things. Blah, blah, blah. The Times. And he was just like, listen, dude. Come on. It contains multitudes. There are lots of people who work there doing great work, and there's amazing stories. You're just angry today. And I don't, he didn't mean that to be like, let me blow your mind. But I thought about it over and over because it's like it's just simple but true. It's like the thing that outrages you and drives you bananas is often has these aspects that are really valuable. Google is just at such a scale like the AMP project, they decided that they would make a better web for mobile and they would make it really faster to load pages. And they said, well, what do we need to do? And they kind of worked backwards from first principles. And then they said, okay, let's have an open standard, but not like let's not go too open because there's so much friction when you go purely open for everybody. We still need to drive this thing. It's, it's about our ecosystem. And AMP, you know, you're supposed to be able to cache pages. So we'll make a really good cache. We'll make the best cache possible here at Google. Well, then that means like suddenly all the pages are hosted from Google. And so the way I don't look, I'm kind of at a point in my life where it's not like I'm done with right or wrong, but it's just when you look at the platform companies, they have power, they exist. And it is impossible to hit a button and make them stop being what they are, right? So so then you have to say, what is what does Google want? Right. And when you talk to people at Google, and I think this is real top to bottom, they're like, we want a healthy media ecosystem. (laughs) We want, like, we want all. But it's true. They have said that to me. They want only good things. They'll look you in the eyes. Google cares about real estate ads, right? Mm -hmm. Which used to be something that the media kind of controlled. Now Google's got it. And so you're playing in that world. And and I think there's an element of ego where the media is like, you know, wait, what is this? Is this for us or not? And Google's going like, no, AMP pages are cool. They'll let you look at house listings and browse videos and, and do all sorts of stuff. And there's a great ad product in here that's really fast and works really well. And that's their universe. Yeah. And then they, they present that to you and you go as, a, as like a media person and you're like, is this going to take money out of my pocket? And they're like, well, no, it's actually, you know, it's monetizing just fine. But then here's what's tricky. You get all invested and you do all this AMP work and, you, you know, it takes a team of three like a couple months and you've spent about $150,000 inside your organization purely on your AMP migration. And you got to then cross your fingers that Google still cares. Yeah. Right. It's the scale. Right. So, you know, is God going to reach down and sort of pet you on the head or, or if he forgets, will he sort of like knock your head right off? <laughs> also, like the implicit promise of AMP. You do all that work. You spend that money. The implicit promise is 
and then you will rank higher. No, that's right. And they won't make that promise because they know that's very problematic. That's right. But you kind of got to get in there. And it's not even wink nod. They're just like, well, the pages will be semantically better. Like, it's just hard. Yeah. It's a mess. And, you know, if you're a big platform company and 150 grand isn't that big a deal of internal budget move around. And you put Susie and Sam on that for a couple months and they do the AMP integration and it monetizes at 12% better. But over your traffic, that, that's, you know, that adds up to about a quarter million dollars a year. You're pretty happy with AMP. And if it adds up to $15,000 a year, you need it's going to take you 10 years to make your investment back and you, you feel really bad about it. So that's a lot of pressure. I mean, even on a big organization, mm-hmm. that's a lot of time. That's a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. Well, and they'll, not spent they'll, they'll, they'll tell you like no big deal, man. This will take like five minutes, but it, it's everybody's CMS is such a mess that nothing <laughs> is easy turnkey like that. Somehow, I knew this would end up as a CMS conversation. <laughs> the reason I'm asking is that's a lot of that's a lot of money, effort, time spent platform dancing mm-hmm. instead of building new kinds of web experiences. And I haven't seen a big new app on the web that's been really interesting in quite a long time. No, not in our world. The world that is getting all the money and all the energy is software as a service. Mm-hmm. That People are very excited about new CR. There are more things that have Kanban board interfaces in the world <laughs> than have ever been before, right? Yeah. Like move those cards along. Yeah. There's actually relatively, like content is locking down into the the product that you guys make chorus arc mm-hmm. for the like the high velocity from the Washington Post for like the high velocity stuff and then WordPress is kind of everywhere else and then there's a few like sort of more branding and marketing ones like Adobe Experience Manager and Sitecore and then kind of everybody else and yeah. that's that's global right so it's like now how many programmers are in this building right now working on chorus in ways that focus on monetization and revenue which are what the big players need right you're years ahead. Okay, so like what's going to blow up and disrupt that so that a new player could show up? Nobody knows. And if something blows up and disrupts it, then people will. But for the most part, everybody else is like, oh, I see a niche over here for smaller publications or this or that or this kind of, you know, or the whole ad tech world. They're looking for for niches as opposed to big platforms. And they got to make do with that. I feel like my CEO is going to come beat down my door if I don't tell people what Chorus is. Do it. Chorus is the platform that The Verge publishes on. Mm-hmm. It's our CMS. It's proprietary. It has, to Paul's point, uh, a revenue engine next to it called Concert, which is a programmatic ad thing. We run a lot of the ads you see on the site. That's it. I'm not here to pitch my no, own but this company's is Im- products. This is important I for the world. I just want to tell people what it is. This is what's real, right, is that you used to get software, and now you get this sort of service and platform that has an understanding of how your business works. Mm-hmm. So at some level, Chorus is also as a service, right? Like nobody, oh, it abso- it absolutely. Is. You can't download it and just run it on your, you know, your Windows XP box and, and experiment. No, you pay us, we run it for you. Yep. So my question is: there was a time, I would say, early two thousands. There's this like raft of extremely interesting consumer web apps that just appeared. Twitter is like sure. I think the first one I think of, right? It, uh, Appeared at South by Southwest. We're all gonna read TechCrunch that day and use Twitter that night, and on and on it goes. Kaboom! Yeah, I don't see that anymore. I don't see that every new app, TikTok, right? Is mm-hmm. the, I would say the parallel to it's that now. Variation on a theme, right? But that is a mobile first native app on phones. Mm-hmm. It is barely a web property. 
Right. Well, I mean, but you know, the funny thing is that yes, but if you look at the underlying infrastructure, everything's a web property. Sure. Like it, it's you know, things speak HTTP and like all the. I, I'm not going to throw acronyms at your poor listeners, no, but like that's what they're here for. No, I know, but like <laughs> the systems underneath, the things that make the apps interesting and engaging and have communities are all web technologies. Yeah. And the app often tends to display a little web browser inside of the app. Except it's all wrapped up in the app, and so like there, you know, it's it's this one, it's this app you download, but the text is all HTML, or you know, just like so the web isn't really going away. It's the shorthand that everybody understands for I need to put some words on a screen, or I need to do it like thirty or forty things that you usually do. Uh, it just all gets wrapped up in these little packages, and so, uh, but yeah, the real, I don't know. I mean, why do you think? Well, so I'm Dieter, who I mentioned before, has an article that he links to all the time called A Brief Definition of the Web, which is a response exactly to the point you just made, which is web technologies are everywhere. Right. But that is not the web. Mm-hmm. And so here's Dieter's definition, a brief definition of the web. To count as being part of the web, your app or page must be linkable and allow any client to access it. Mm-hmm. That is not true of TikTok on your phone. Not true. That's exactly there's right. There's some content in TikTok that is accessible. Oh, there's always. It's like Instagram is a good example. You can kind of get to it on the web. You but. can't get Instagram DMs on the web. Yeah. No, that's right. right? It's like the, the thing full that Instagram makes, experience is not there. No, what makes Instagram Instagram is not like what you can see when you go to Instagram.com. It's just, it is, it is the app. Yeah. So my question is, if that's what's happening, we're taking all these web technologies that allowed your business to thrive, that allowed our business to thrive. That we are now selling, but you know, WordPress exists, Arc exists. Like, there's all these mm-hmm. software platforms for the web that you can just buy, and then now people are in your platform. Mm-hmm. But if the thing that enabled it was linkable, allow any client to access it, and that's being shoved into apps, what is the push and pull dynamic? Like, if you're hopeful about tech, it seems to me the the thing that everyone was most hopeful about was this democracy of access. I know, but boy, did we learn. Okay, so look, I mean, deep down, what do I believe in my heart? A, they can't take it away. Browsers Mm -hmm. work, and I can publish a web page and put it up in the world. And if it really has a message that the world needs to hear, they'll probably, I'll get, you know, between seven or eight (laughs) readers. No, I mean, there is a, things are cheaper than they've ever been, and you can produce and distribute ideas at an extraordinary velocity. The problem is platform lock-in and also just the way these ecosystems are, work, right? Like one of the thing that's real in our world is like people talk about regulation a lot. Regulation is the Apple terms of service, right? Like I'm not – I don't have to think too much about the law because Apple's going to tell me what's allowed on the App Store and Google's going to tell me what's allowed. And I'll probably inherit a lot of those decisions for the web app version as well, right? Like they are the interpreters. So there's a lot of convenience there. And, and at some level, I just have to be like, it's okay. This is a big new world. We're in the middle. We're, I don't know, like, you know, there is this possible future where Amazon and Google drones are fighting over us and, you know, raining cameras down on our heads to take pictures of us. Everyone gets a ring camera to surveil their neighbors forever. Yeah, exactly, right. And that is that as ridiculous as it used to be? Not anymore. No, I mean, <laughs> it, because it's gotten really casual. Like, we're now, because, yeah, the ring camera could show up. It, mm-hmm. They could mail one to you tomorrow and you'd be like, huh. Yeah. 
what's going on here? And, you, you know, is it possible that in your life you could write an article that's like, I always thought I would hate all this surveillance that was in my, you know, blah, blah, blah. But I kind of love it. Like, they can get you. They're good. They're good at marketing. They're good at messaging. And, and the, the trade-offs on the giant platforms are pretty cool. You get a lot of toys to play with. Will people want to connect to something smaller? Will they want to make a little... Here's my thing is always... When you could go to your router and plug a little, like, tiny gumstick-sized computer into a USB port, and that's your social network for, like, you and your friends, if that ever became popular, if, like, teens no longer wanted to be on platforms because they were lame, but somehow got really into sysadminning Unix, you know, I mean, it, this is what's tricky. It's never cool. Like, the hard part that you need to build the community and the connection it's still hard and requires a lot of knowledge and and it doesn't it's not sociable in the way that like playing guitar is sociable right you started a, a server called tilly club yeah D- describe it okay so this is one of those things that you, you ever have the side project where you're like oh god what have i done yeah. and then it's a little source of guilt for the rest of your life <laughs> i had a couple drinks one night and i created a website called tilda club it used to be in the olden days that you're, uh, which I'm trying not to talk about the olden days, but f- to hell with it. All right, so Tilda, you'd have a website, and it'd be like... It was your username. It was Someserver.com, yeah, yeah, slash Tilda character, your username. And so I created Tilda Club because it sounded ridiculous. And I, it was just a Unix machine, and I gave like people accounts. And I went yeah. to bed, and I gave like 10 people accounts as a joke on Twitter. Uh, and then I woke up, and there were like 1,000 requests, and then 7,000. And I got to like 500, and then I was like, what am I doing? I have children. But um, <laughs> people got on that server, and they made web pages, and they just partied like it was 99, but it was new, novel, sort of fun stuff. And after that, there were all these new servers that came up in the, quote, Tildiverse, and people started um, creating all kinds of new environments to play and mess with this. And Tilda Club is actually still running, and somebody asked if they could take it over, and I said... Uh, yeah, we should do that, and then I keep forgetting. It's Mark Zuckerberg. It. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> At this point, <laughs> I'd love to save the fifty dollars a month. The, um, <laughs> but no, but so Tilda Club is a, when you say it's just a Unix server. Just it was a literally on Amazon. People are um, FTPing up yeah. like files. Yeah, they have accounts. I just yeah. gave it to them. Could they run like CGI's? Like they can uh, do the whole thing. I don't think I turned it on. I kept. Yeah. I tried to keep it under control. Yeah. Um, what you find is, you know, after you get to that, what is it, Dunbar's number 150, mm-hmm. you get after that and uh, suddenly the uh, behavior of human beings is a lot harder yeah. to manage. And so I just didn't want – there's this thing with aggregate humanity, which I know you run into too, where it just becomes like monkeys hitting the bone. Oh, yeah. and I, didn't, I was trying to avoid that. I've had that. So many times in my career at this point, like I just I didn't want the monkey bone smashing yeah. feeling of the fun side project with the community. Yeah. So no, it was this wonderful like I would say month long party of people making stuff and engaging with some of the reasons why they like the medium. That's still there. I can go buy a Raspberry Pi uh, for the computer for you know thirty forty bucks, and I can put it on the internet. And I can send a signal to a million people if I can find a million people. And again, like the challenge now is nobody's looking because the platforms are, are sort of constantly flowing. Except, honestly, if that has a good URL and, and somebody on Twitter sees it, that content could get out there. Yeah. Same with Facebook. Like, it's just you are reliant on the platforms in a way you didn't used to be. I don't think people go to Google and poke around for fun anymore, right? No. It's a little – well, I think people go to YouTube and poke around for fun. That is true. 
But that's um, that's a closed, that's a hermetically sealed universe. Yeah, they won't that, even let you click the links. Yeah. When you think about what a healthier ecosystem would look like, it is nice when the platforms like allow your content to get distributed and it's expensive to actually put video online. Like it is really not easy to host a lot of streaming video for lots of people who want it. Yeah. And so that's a good thing that they do. It's very valuable. It's just if we could have a hundred YouTubes or a thousand so that there was some competition between all the YouTubes as opposed it's to a just, constant theme of the show. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like, I mean, that's, and, but again, you know, wouldn't it be nice? And I feel that sometimes in this industry, we like, Oh, you know, there should be a utopian state that should exist because it's in my head and I'm a dude who likes tech and I think it should be this way. And then the world is not really going to do that. Like, it's not like Google's like, Oh, you know, you're right. We need to split up YouTube. The government could do it. If it could figure out what the hell's going on, they're trying, you know, um, um, but like, why, so post light, why don't you, has any client come to you and said, we want to build a competitor to YouTube? No, not in 2019. And it doesn't seem like anyone's that interested in doing such a thing. No, the only people who, who do that are literally like, they see some Facebook ad and it's like a 19 year old who's like, <laughs> I'm going to make a new YouTube, but it's all going to be about cargo pants. And you're yeah. like, cool. What's your budget? And they're like, what, what? <laughs> I would love to be in one of those meetings for you where you like have to gently let down a teenager who wants to build cargo pants. Oh, YouTube. just do it. Just I'll I do it all the time. I've let down so many hundreds of people <laughs> at this point. I have I have talked to two hundred people about their CMSs. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I mean that's the thing. Like, where is that energy? It's out there. It's just they grew up in the world with the platforms, not with the web. So they're thinking, I want to do X on Spotify. I want to create this and put it on YouTube. They're thinking, you know, <laughs> I remember in uh, Parks and Rec where Aziz, I'm sorry, had Entertainment 720 yes. or whatever. It's like that. No, it's my f absolutely my favorite arc on that entire the, show. Exactly. Everybody wants that. They're yeah. like, I'm going to build a multimedia conglomerate, and they skip ahead to it. They're going to build the podcast network. They're going to build the, you know, the 360. No, go to 720. And, and it, it's um, that's what I see coming up. I don't know. It's kind of great. I hope I yeah. hope it succeeds. It's a lot of stuff that isn't for me. Like, I don't, you know, okay, create your fashion brand and your podcast network. Um, recent NYU grad, like, you know, and I, I don't know if you remember too, there's this, this moment in your twenties where everyone is incredibly jealous of incredibly small things and mm -hmm. nobody has actually accomplished anything yet. So you get that vibe too. Like everybody's trying to kind of outpace their friends fantasies to show that they're the real hustler. Yeah. And so, so there's that, there's that, but I love it. I love the energy. I mean, it's, it's my favorite thing. I mean, I am a capitalist and mm -hmm. that's like, that's the animating force. I think we should probably put some tighter guardrails around it. I think that would be good. Like, I think anybody who lives in a very, anyone who takes public transportation in New York City is like, yeah, we got it. It's, I like a little capitalism, but we also got to like figure some stuff out <laughs> yeah, here. Like, it'd be great if we sorted that out. Yeah. I mean, also the whole city is going to be underwater in like two hours. It was underwater was, yesterday. Yeah, I know. So it's like, I'm excited. I'm excited. I like hustling. I like making money. And I, I've loved building this company, especially I, I have a very good, like the co-founder, my co-founder, and I it like it worked out real good. I lucked out in my partner. But there's another part of me that's excited about the trillions of dollars of global warming investment that is going to be necessary to keep Manhattan from evaporating. Yeah. And I'm like, that could be cool. I wonder what's <laughs> going to happen there. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from Kohler. I think when we think of design, we're like, beautiful poster, gorgeous graphics. But I also think design has like a place in making sure that people feel the best that they can be. Hi, 
I'm Laura Delorado. I'm a group creative director at Vox Creative. During my nine to five and my five to nine, I've always got good design on the brain. It's metaphorically and physically glowing. It's like the Aurora Borealis. Which is exactly why I was so excited to meet the new Me 2.0, Kohler's smartest toilet. On first introduction, it legit just waved a hand at me. Not actual waved a hand, but the lid moved up and greeted me for the use. But right now we're in a showroom, so I can't actually use it. Functions like this, a hands-free greeting, and form combine in the new me to elevate the everyday. It's a sculpture that begs for someone to like rest their body on it and walk away feeling really comfortable. A temperature-controlled bidet, the heated seat, automatic self-cleaning cycles, access to smart home functions thanks to a built-in Alexa, the Numi's got it all for everyone. The bottom has this really beautiful green glow, and it's almost as if they knew that was my special color because if you go into my bathroom at home, the entire bathroom is a mint green. It's like the Numi knew that I was showing up. And what's really cool about this is that there is this like circular sphere metal piece that like allows for you to change the color on the bottom. So if I'm not in my mint green era, which I'm often am, I can be in another era, my like calming blue, my like rosy pink, like whatever I need to feel. It's, it's like the Sistine Chapel of toilets. Experience a fully connected oasis of clean and comfort with the Numi 2.0. Learn more at Kohler.com. Support for the podcast comes from Hims. Look, we all need help, but for some of us guys, it can be a real challenge to be so vulnerable. There are just some things we'd rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Introducing Hims, a men's healthcare product looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms, no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash verge. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash verge for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash verge. Prescription to require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash verge for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So let's talk, just to end up on, let's talk about building stuff. Mm-hmm. Did you write a piece about how building stuff is good? Gives mm-hmm. you hope. We've talked a lot about the environment in which you build stuff now. Mm-hmm. It's like radically different than a few years ago. But right at the beginning of this conversation, you said, we got to lace in the ethics maybe a little bit earlier, right? In wait, the pro- wait, wait, what did I say about ethics? You were like, <laughs> the platforms got big. There's not a lot of introspection. Yeah. It would be good if we maybe talked about it a little bit earlier in the sure, process. Sure, So you're, you know product manager. You probably talked to a lot of product managers. You've built a lot of stuff. How do you think that's changed and how do you think we make that better so that we preserve the spirit of hope and excitement? Well, I think, first of all, there's just a lot of work to do. So that part's good. Like, you know, everybody's got to 
digital platforms sitting around the I'm, as we're talking I'm looking out at skyscrapers there are 700 to 2000 badly decaying digital platforms within eyesight mm-hmm. right so so there's that there's just a lot to do there's lots of work i mean it's, it's like I'm looking out the window, I'm like, oh my god, the building gonna fall. Yeah, no, they're all gonna fall. Yeah, no, I mean the air conditioning monitoring system yeah, yeah. is falling apart, or the the website hasn't been updated, or the trading platform doesn't work. Like, all of those things are still real. So, in terms of hope, first of all, I don't think product and product management is is hurting for hope. It's an, you have to be hopeful to be yeah. a product manager because products don't want to ship. Like most things in the world, don't want to get across the line. So. There is a fundamental optimism that has to be paired with a willingness to say no and, and sort of all that stuff. I think there's lots of things that are really complicated and big and weird in the world. And the platform companies are confusing and messy. We're in a platform company talking right now. We're getting to make something. That's exciting. The thing that is still mind-boggling, and maybe this is just the adolescent like model train part of myself, is that it gets cheaper to do more every day. Now, it's hard and it's rigid because you have to make the app-like experiences. You can't just publish a page anymore and so on. But, like, um, you know, my old website, ftrain.com, which don't take that as an endorsement. Nobody needs to look at that. It's <laughs> um, it used to cost me $100 a year or $100 uh, a month to host just to have a good server that could handle a reasonable amount of traffic and so on. And I let that sit for like a couple of years while we got post-site rolling. And then one, one weekend, I'm like, I got to stop spending this money. This yeah. is ridiculous. It cost me $1.99 a month to run now because I, I use this thing called Zite. And I just like put it all on the Zite, static hosting. There's some command lines I run. I have no clue what's happening. I don't know where <laughs> it is. I don't know what's working. I cut and paste it from a tutorial. And it is like it's either $1.99 or $2.49. And it works great. Everything works just fine. It's And I have this archive going back 20 years that is stable and secure, and I have it backed up in case that goes goes away. And if I used Amazon, I could probably get it down even further. So it's getting cheaper to do more, but it is not an environment that rewards the vast and ridiculous creativity that we saw in, uh, in the early days. And I think it would. I think that just a little more ridiculousness would be welcomed because it's very inexpensive to be ridiculous at scale. Yeah. I mean, I, we ran a piece today about Plex. Yeah. Bijan Steven read it. Uh, it's a great piece. Um, and it's just about little communities that pop up, mm-hmm. sharing a Plex server. It's basically about piracy, just to be blunt. And before everyone tweets at me, yes, I know there are legitimate uses for Plex. I see you people ripping your entire Blu-ray collections onto a Mac. You're great. But the larger uses of Plex are these little communities that form. Little baby oh, social networks. better than piracy communities. They're so much fun. They're really great. But I'm missing that, right? These small – Tilde Club is another example. Yeah. This is a small community. Tilde Club got too big. It got you, too big. You know you, it, you're saying it got too big at like 150 people. Yeah. It did. I think a nice size for a community is 30. Yeah. Right? And this is what's tricky is because you can't get famous on 30. 30 can't pay your bills. 30 doesn't really care that much if you're, like, playing in a band. Like, it's just community at that point. There's none of the narcissistic rewards that we love so much. I mean, I love it. I like having all my Twitter followers. It's very exciting. But if I could have, like, and I know who'd be in my 30, it would be, like, this one guy who's a little bit older than me used to be a student of my dad's, and we used. This is, to, you're basically putting together a wedding guest list. It is, a, but it, no, no, no. <laughs> it's, it's specific though. It's like 
a couple dudes who are really a couple dudes who are probably a little too into prog rock and like you know like some the person (laughs) who yeah you know you know actually make the whole list so that everybody when we promote the episode everyone has to listen to see if they made the (laughs) that's right no you you know where you see some of it is the little like the tumblr cohorts that are really specific on a topic and they're like they're just digging and archiving and digging up experiences and, and sort of putting it together but getting away from the broader platforms there's no need for let's be real right like with a nicely instrumented ten dollar raspberry pi plugged in the us in the usb and and the ability to get on the network or a really tiny cloud server i should be able to host lots of media and have lots of fun and chat and conversation with 30 friends for probably like 15 dollars a year yeah so the platform's there we have access there could be then there's there's all sorts of stuff to make this work it's a little clunky around the edges. And I think that the other problem, too, is like streaming platforms have made the piracy less valuable. Like it used to be like, you got to see this. This is an obscure bootleg from the band that we care about. And now it's it's probably on Spotify or it's close enough that you're just like, I don't need to hear You can anymore. definitely find a slightly sped up version on YouTube. Yeah, exactly. That's right. That's right. Isn't so it, it doesn't quite catch the algorithm. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, is that a thing that we should be looking at is can we build smaller networks of people, smaller communities? Are we ready to let go of the tens of thousands of people possibly telling you how interesting and important you are every single day? And the thing is, it's it's kind of rigid, right? Like I feel part of me would really, I, I think you can probably have both. Part of me would like to really just take a step back, but I have a business. I promote my business. I talk about things, me being in public and having conversations like this one is an important part of like doing a job in 2019. And so like, where am I going to put my energy and time? And, and right now I'm probably putting more energy into being outward facing. But yeah, the thing I crave is just like goofing off with your friends. Building stuff for fun. Just being silly. I miss the silly and I'm making, and there's private slacks and stuff like that. Yeah. I I think that, that one of the spirits of the earlier that I miss was, uh, building silly stuff just for fun to see if you could pull it off. That's right. And a lot of that stuff basically was digital vandalism. It was, or you just, you know what, just sucking. You (laughs) knew you sucked. It was fine. Yeah. But then there's something so demoralizing about 5,000 people telling you exactly why you suck. And you're just like, I guess I shouldn't. Okay. Okay. So I have two ideas for your product studio. Oh, we're going to build something together? We're going to build build a turnkey Raspberry Pi that you stick into the back of your router. Okay. It's a hardware social network. You know, I've thought about this a lot. The problem is um, getting that port open at the router level. Like, it's because the, it's oh, not. Oh, that's uh, we, We've had tons of router company CEOs. I'll call, we'll get like Nick okay. Weaver from Eero. Okay. It'll be a special button. Yeah, because the problem is like, I mean, no, but it's the cable. It's like Optimum doesn't want to open up port 8080. Hmm. You got it. That's like a phone call. And then you got to get the right person. All right, we got the CEO. I don't think the CEO of Optimal wants to come on this show. Ooh. There's a lot of like other things That's, to talk about with a, with a cable yeah. co-executive. What about Port 80? Yeah. Hey, guys. Hold on a minute. So you have no competition. You've been subtly raising prices and your service is bad. But I really want this one yeah. port open yeah. for my hardware social network startup idea. Listen, it would be worth it. All right. Hardware social networks. I think it would that be fun. Yeah, let's do it. Like well, it's like BBSs, but but smaller. Just I mean, what? Okay, just take a pause for a second. What I, mean, if, I was like a deep BBS nerd. So right. What like do people want? They want to. They want to leave. A, they want to write a little graffiti on the wall. Yeah. Be like, I was here. They want to share some files. Mm-hmm. What else? Yeah, I think those. Those are the two. That's things. it, right? See, it doesn't have to be that complicated. It's photos. Well, they want to find people to share. I mean, like Reddit is this idea at scale. Right. But how do I keep it small? 
Yeah, it's got to stay small. Well, you you clearly are weight limited by the power of your Raspberry Pi. It's, it's brutal, right? Though, because if you say it's thirty, and then someone has to come and someone has to go. No, I'm telling you, this is one hundred percent. You all you're doing is making a wedding guest list. Oh, it's just this mean. is how my wedding was four hundred and fifty people. Yeah, this is the thing. How do you keep it smaller when some people have a much higher threshold for knowing people? All right, okay. here's the second thing. Okay, that I think you should do is you should promote your podcast, which is why you came on this podcast. So tell us about that, and we'll wrap it up. Thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, if <laughs> if you like the sound of my voice, and who wouldn't, uh, you should check out Track Changes from Postlight. Um, just go to postlight.com. You'll, you will find it right away. It is a weekly podcast that I do with my co-founder, Richard Ziotti, all about how technology is changing the world. But also, if you're really into, like, what the hell is enterprise software and what is product, yeah. we're, we're the place to go. What is product? Well... We get a lot of different definitions. What I would say is it's a it's a social craft more than anything in which you take the energy of designers and the energy of engineers and you you help and coordinate with them and often with other stakeholders to make the thing happen and yeah. to get it shipped across the line. So sometimes d- different kinds of product managers. Some people are like writing the document and saying, here's what we're going to build. Uh, some are just every day sitting down with the team. But you're, you're, you're coordinating the development of the product and you are managing scope, cutting scope, working on budgets, like making making it real. Uh, at a large org, we're client service, so we're mostly focused on shipping the thing. At a big company, a product manager is also usually responsible for revenue. Yeah. Like this thing that we're launching has to make $100 million a year. Yeah. That seems terrible. It's a lot of money. No, that is when you go work for the big platform companies, it's like, what you know, what do you do as a PM? Well, I'm responsible. I have to, in 18 months, develop a product with an $100 million run rate. But you do that because you're already on top of something that makes billions. So you're like, okay, instead of oranges, we're going to sell lemons. And then <laughs> and they're like, and we'll get more markup on the lemons. And they're like, wow, that added up to $100 million. You get a bonus. That sounds a lot easier and harder than what I do. Yeah. One oh. of the reasons I'm in journalism, I'm like, I'm over here from the revenue. Yeah, that's it happens over there. It's great. Yeah, it's always you definitely stay away from the money is a great plan for your career. <laughs> I'm Def- working that's, on it. that's what I would tell everyone in journalism. Now, don't ever understand the business. No, oh, God. Yeah, that's right. foolish. That's another 45 minutes yeah, of us okay. talking yeah, about no, the past and the future. Mm. Paul Ford, thank hey. you so much for joining us. It's exciting. Exciting. It, it is really truly odd that we have known of each other and around each other for so long, but we've never sat down and talked. It's a big city. It's still a big industry. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for coming on. All right. That was Paul Ford. My thanks to him for joining us. You can check out his show, Track Changes. It's all about product management. It's great. I encourage you to listen to it. We'll be back on Friday with more Vergecast. We'll be back on Tuesday with more interviews. We're just going to keep it going. We've got some surprises in store for you coming up on the feed, though. I'm excited about those. You can tweet at me. I'm at Reckless. Would love to hear from you. Love your feedback on the show. Hear who you want me to talk to, what you want me to get into. We're here for you. We'll see you on Friday. Thank you to Kohler for supporting this episode. Who says smart things can't also be beautiful things? The Numi 2.0 is Kohler's most advanced toilet ever. Equipped with fully customizable bidet, heated seats, automatic cleaning cycles, and on-demand smart home functions thanks to its built-in Alexa. The Numi 2.0 is a fully connected oasis of clean and comfort with unmatched sculptural design. Customize the lights to match your interior or your mood and enjoy an immersive, intuitive experience of personalized luxury and cleanliness. More than a toilet, it's a work of art. Learn more at Kohler.com.